0: On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign. It all started as a bold experiment on March 19th, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress to the White House to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades. Help us keep it going. Visit cspanorg slash donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspanorg slash donate. Thank you. And welcome to About Books on Book TV. In a few minutes, we'll talk about the sometimes invisible world of ghostwriters, as well as a recent gathering of the ghosts in New York City. But first, here's some of the latest news from the publishing world. Well, the early months of 2024 have brought several major book announcements. The Supreme Court's newest justice, Katanji Brown Jackson, announced that her memoir will be released in September. The book will be entitled Lovely One, the publisher Penguin Random House, which describes Justice Jackson's book as an inspiring, revelatory autobiography from the first black woman ever to serve on the United States Supreme Court. Also in the news, Semaphore reported that Pennsylvania Democratic Senator John Fetterman is writing a book about his life and his struggles with mental health. The report noted that Senator Fetterman is working with bestselling author Buzz Bissinger on the book. Another book that's coming out, WNBA star and Olympic gold medalist Brittany Greiner is publishing a book about the 10 months she spent in Russia's prison system. Ms. Greiner was arrested, of course, at a Moscow airport for possession of cannabis oil just days before Russia invaded Ukraine. That was in February of 2022. She was released in December of that year in a prisoner swap with the U.S. for a Russian arms dealer. Ms. Griner's book is entitled Coming Home, Coming Out in May. And one more news item Publishers Weekly reports that Skyhorse Publishing is expanding with the acquisition of the publishing house All Seasons Press. Last year, Skyhorse acquired Regnery Press, which is known for its conservative voices, including Dennis Prager, Ann Coulter, and Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. The publishing house being acquired all seasons, published journalist Tucker Carlson's Tucker and former Donald Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, the chief's chief. And now a look into the world of ghostwriting. So Daniel Paisner, I think we all have a basic understanding of what a ghostwriter is, but how do you define it?
1: You know, I I think we are really collaborators of a kind. The other day I was having a conversation uh, with a prospective client and I use the analogy of of a, of a lyricist when you're writing songs, you know, I help supply the words, but the person I'm sitting across uh, from the table with is, is writing the song and we're very much working on this piece of music together, it just happens to be a book. So I, I help people write their stories. Uh, the ghostwriter term I think is a little bit of a throwback to when we were anonymous, that's no longer really the case.
0: And does your name ever appear on these so-called ghost-written books?
1: Uh, It does, often. Um, And uh, I find it's usually a function of the nature of the personality I'm, I'm collaborating with. Sometimes if I'm working with an artist like a comedian who's familiar to his audience as someone who writes his own material, there's a perception that maybe it might dilute that relationship with his audience if he advertises or she advertises that they've had a helping hand. Uh, so, in those cases, I'm happy to take a step back and, um, and, and work as a true ghost. But in most cases in my career, I have gotten credit, either on the cover or on the inside in acknowledgment in some way.
0: How did you get started in this business?
1: A happy accident. I can't imagine uh, that there are too many third grade kids out there in the heartland raising their hand when the teacher asks them if they want to be a ghostwriter. Uh, I was a writer. Uh, I was a freelance writer, actually. I was a kid. I was in my mid-20s, and I was covering the entertainment beat, and I was having a hard time, as you can imagine, sort of cobbling together and hustling a living between freelance assignments. I found I was chasing work more than I was actually working. And I was able to get a gig writing a book for Willard Scott when he was uh, at the Today Show. This was in the mid-'80s. That's how old I am. Um, And I thought of it as a one-off gig. I never thought I'd be doing this for... Uh, for the rest of my career. But it turned out I had an affinity for it, I had the right personality for it, I had the right toolbox uh, in order in order to do the job, and I kept at it.
0: And according to the Wall Street Journal, you have more bestsellers than all, but the very biggest names in publishing, including, uh, nobody has heard of him necessarily, including most of his readers. Do the publishing houses know who you are? Is that how you're employed?
1: They do. I mean, publishers that I worked with successfully are happy to work with me again. I also work with a number of literary agents so that I'm very often attached to a project before it reaches the publishing house. Um, So I I think if you build a good body of work um, and if you are diligent about making sure that your client is satisfied, I when I do these projects, I really think of Uh, Of these books uh, as being written for an audience of one. If I can satisfy the celebrity I'm working with, the politician, the actor, the athlete, uh, then I feel that my job is done. But usually in satisfying that person, that means uh, the editor is on board and the rest of the publishing house as well. And if you leave enough happy customers in your wake, there's a good chance they'll call you back and invite you to the dance again. Some of the people
0: that Daniel Paisner has worked with include Serena Williams, John Kasich, Whoopi Goldberg, Denzel Washington, Ed Koch, Ray Lewis, Anthony Quinn. That's quite a variety of people. Do you have a favorite genre or do you have a specialization?
1: You know, I do like to mix it up. I think one of the reasons I've been able to work so long at this uh, is because I've become a little bit of a generalist. My favorite, though, are, are are the books that I've done with anonymous people, ordinary people who've done or maybe seen something extraordinary, people who aren't used to sharing their stories or facing a camera or a microphone. I worked on a book with a Holocaust survivor, that's one of the most meaningful projects uh, that has crossed my desk. I worked on a book with uh, a survivor, a New York City um, a battalion commander from FDNY who survived the collapse of the World Trade Center on 9-11. Those stories to me are are more vibrant and immediate and and more raw than some of the uh, books I've written with people who are comfortable in the limelight.
0: So let's take two of your co-authors, shall we say, Mm -hmm. Serena Williams and John Kasich. What was the process like with each of them?
1: With each one, it's a little bit different. With each one as it happens, which isn't always the case, I spend time with them in their homes, I had dinner, I have breakfast in their homes, I stayed in their homes. Uh, and that's a very important foundational piece of the process. Very often I'll start in on a project and I'll spend, you know, the first few sessions without a notepad, without a recorder, without my phone these days, capturing uh, an interview and governor Kasich at one point said to me are, are we working what are you doing here you flew all the way out to see me in Ohio let's get to work and I said look we're working I think you need to uh, sort of walk in their shoes a little bit see how they live interact with them as they uh, as they move back and forth in their lives with their family with Serena I went and watched her practice I went and watched her work out we went for a run um, and there was no tape running. There was no notepad at my side. But all this stuff was was important. It goes to how they look at the world so that I can help them speak into that world in a way that honors their voice and their vision.
0: And how do you get their voice? By listening to them talk and conversation?
1: Yeah, I guess I'm I'm a mimic. I mean, for your older viewers, I'm a Rich Little. For your younger viewers, I'm a Dana Carvey. I find that if I can parrot somebody and, and sort of mimic the rhythms and the tone uh, in, in a paragraph or two, I'm able to sustain that over the course of 300 pages. And that comes from uh, just being with them and absorbing uh, the ways they speak and the way they interact. With, uh, with others, the people in their lives, not just in their in their household, but the people I work with. In the governor's case, I was with him when, when he was on the campaign trail. So I, I soaked in all, all of that as well. And then, of course, once you have that foundation, you do sit down and you run tape and you do you know a comprehensive interview, but always we do so with an agenda. I don't like to surprise people. I don't have a set list of questions that I ask, but they know that we're going to cover certain territory um, so that they can get their heads around it and maybe refresh their memory a little bit before we sit down.
0: Daniel Paisner, from start to finish, from getting the contract to a published book, how long is that?
1: You know, it varies each time out. The book I did with Whoopi Goldberg, I was called in late in the process, and that book we had to turn around in two weeks. Anthony Quinn, I worked with him on a big, sweeping, comprehensive life story, a great Hollywood memoir he lived a big full life that took two years so I I think it varies typically uh, I like to give myself six to nine months to work on a book and then publishers usually take another six to nine months to sit with it and turn it around and and do their copy editing and design and and to pre-sell into bookstores before it actually lands on the shelves.
0: Does the primary person in this relationship edit your work?
1: I'm not sure what you mean, Peter, by the primary person. What do you mean?
0: Uh, does Serena Williams, after you submit a manuscript or John Kasich, do they look at it and do they go through it and edit it?
1: Absolutely. Although, you know what? I wouldn't call that editing. To me, that's part of, of the process. It's almost like a game of hot potato. So when, if I present a draft to uh, to my subject... I expect them to mark it up and roll up their sleeves and, and really make it their own. It's a little bit like that game we all used to play as kids, Mad Libs. You know, I'll leave little blanks uh, in, the, in the pages just if I'm not quite sure what they were thinking at that point. I find it, it, it slows the train a little bit if I would stop at each point and say, Hey, Serena, what were you thinking here? I'd rather write my way through that anecdote, that beat in the story, and then let her fill in the blanks later. So I don't really call that or look at that as part of the editing process. I look at that as part of the drafting process. And at the other end of it, they're able to stand behind this work and feel a real pride of authorship and, and claim it as their own.
0: Daniel Paisner, how does the compensation work on a ghostwriting project?
1: Again, it varies each time out, sometimes we work for a flat fee and sometimes we work for a piece of the project. Uh, so it varies, it depends on how long you've been doing this and how much in demand you are. Obviously, my fees have changed over the years. Um, I love it when I have a horse in the race, if I know that I can participate in the back end, I think I work a little bit differently, There's in, I'm incentivized in a different way. However. You know, if there's a big flat fee, I'm also happy to accept that too, but it, but it does vary. Very often when I'm working with someone anonymous, when I'm in at the ground floor before we have a book deal, I'll seek a partnership of some kind uh, because then I feel, I never want to feel like I have my hand in my client's pocket. I'd love it to work out so that the money that flows to them also flows in some way to me. So even though I am working for them, I don't want them necessarily to think that they're paying me because I think that infects the relationship in a way that's not helpful to the book.
0: Are there books out there that have Daniel Paisner, author, on them?
1: Uh, You mean ghostwritten books that that I'm credited on or books of my own? Books of your own. I've written four novels of my own. My most recent book was a book called Balloon Dog. It came out last year. It's about the bungled theft of a Jeff Koons balloon dog sculpture. When I started out doing this, back in my Willard Scott days, I made a little bit of a bargain with myself that I would write one of theirs and and one of mine. You know, my vision back then was to be uh, the great American novelist. And when I realized that I wasn't gonna sell enough books to put my kids through college or or to put braces on their teeth, I had to make this little bargain uh, with myself and help others write their stories. The balance has shifted over the years. It hasn't really been one of mine and one of theirs. Um, It's hard to turn away work when you work as a freelancer, Uh, but I've written uh, about five books of my own and then some nonfiction books of my own as well.
0: 17 new york times bestsellers are there any projects that you've turned down
1: there are some um, and the more um experience i've had uh, and the more uh, sort of hand i have in this business the more likely i am to step away from something that just doesn't interest me Uh, i've worked with people whose politics i don't agree with whose worldview doesn't necessarily align with mine and certainly whose experiences don't align with mine I think I would draw the line um, at, at somebody who was putting some negative energy out into the world uh, or who was standing for something that I found truly uh, vile and I couldn't get behind at all I don't want to work in support of a mission that I don't embrace myself but that doesn't mean I'm a nice liberal Jew from New York, that doesn't mean I can't work with somebody with a more conservative background. Um, So um, there are books I turn down for scheduling reasons um, more often than books that I turn down for philosophical or ideological reasons.
0: Mr. Paisner, you published an article saying basically that your parents really didn't understand what you did for a living.
1: They didn't, you know, because I think that's and I understand that now that I'm a parent, you know, because we tend to look on at our kids as, you know, the little pictures they were when we first held them in our in our arms. So I, I don't really think they got how the sausage was made. But again, this was back in the 80s. And, and 90s, and it wasn't really clear to a lot of people what a ghostwriter is and, and how these books find their way onto the show. The conceit of this transaction, you know, when you see a Whoopi Goldberg book on the front table at Barnes & Noble, the expectation is that Whoopi Goldberg uh, did that thing entirely on her own. Um, in my mind, she did. I was really there to help her. Uh, my role was not that much different than the guy who designed the pages or the person who, took, who came up with the cover concept or who took the cover photo. It takes many hands to put a book out into the world. And I think my parents who were lifelong readers and they, they were plugged into the world around just didn't get how uh, all these ingredients come together on, on a book. They knew I was a writer, uh, but that was kind of uh, where their uh, experience left them.
0: Have you ever had your feelings hurt in a sense by not having your name on the book or being acknowledged?
1: No, because I don't think you can have that kind of an ego if you do this kind of work um, repeatedly. There are a lot of people who do this in a one-off way and then never come back, Uh, never come back to it. Or they only come back to it when they need the money or if they have a gap between projects of their own. Uh, to me, that's never really bothered me. What I really care about is being able to add each book to my resume. If, if, If I can't use it as a calling card, if it can't advance me to the next book in some way, whether I'm credited on the cover or just gifted with the freedom to tell publishers that I worked on this or that project, then that book doesn't really serve me beyond the paycheck. So if you're looking to build a body of work, I think you need to be able to stand in front of that body of work.
0: Daniel Paisner, there was recently a ghostwriter conference, the first time ever. What was discussed?
1: You know, one of the great things about that conference, it was called The Gathering of the Ghosts, and it was held in Manhattan in in January, was the sense of community. You know so many of us work alone as all writers really do it's a very solitary profession so i think there was great value and great takeaway value in being able to just sit and swap stories and share uh you know share stories from the trenches and compare trade secrets Uh, So more than any one topic that was discussed and of course there were panel discussions throughout the day and the organizers are already planning next year's event with with more panels. To me the most meaningful takeaway was was the fact that there are others uh, like me out there and that we can find strength and safety in numbers. Uh, So to me there was a great benefit in just the collegiality of that event.
0: How has your profession changed since you worked with Willard Scott in the mid 80s?
1: I think what's changed, uh, social media, I think, has changed the transaction a little bit. You know, if you think about how people read, how, how you read, a lot of people, it's a very intimate exchange, right? We read in bed, we read in the bathtub, we read on the toilet, you know? And, and, and the ways uh, celebrities now interact with their fan base through social media, there's an expectation that they be completely open and completely candid and completely honest. So I think if you look at the andre agassi book which came out the same season as my uh, serena williams uh, book did and very often we uh, those books were reviewed together because there were the two big tennis titles that year that book was famously raw and you know agassi kind of threw his own father under the bus threw the sport of tennis under the bus he bled on the page and opened a little bit of a vein here. And he wrote this searing, honest portrait of what his life was like as a professional athlete, a life he didn't always embrace. And I think that was kind of a turning point in the sports memoir that you now see in other celebrity memoirs as well. Readers have been conditioned to expect um, their celebrity subjects to lay bare the stuff of their lives. Uh, So I think the transaction is different. Back in my Willard days, it was a little bit more benign, it was jolly, it was happy, it was an extension of whatever that celebrity brand was going into the project. Now I think people want to look behind the the screen a little bit and see something new and something fresh and something that's more intimate.
0: Is there an ethical standard for ghostwriters in your view?
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by that, Peter. It's, it, you know, we're not really journalists. We're sort of journalism adjacent. My ethical standard is uh, that everything that we include in the pages of our book need to be true, 100% accurate. But that also doesn't mean that the, my celebrity clients are required to tell all. They're entitled to keep something close to their best. If they don't want to go there, they don't need to go there. Uh, So the ethical standard I bring uh, to the table when someone works with me is, look, if you're gonna tell a story, we need to make sure and put every effort into making sure that that is as accurate as possible. And if you're unsure of how events unfolded, there are people in your world, uh, people adjacent to your world that we can talk to to corroborate your recollection of events.
0: Mr. Paisner, what's your podcast?
1: My podcast is called As Told To, the Ghostwriting Podcast. It's available wherever podcasts happen, and I had this idea that it was interesting to talk to other idiots like me about about ghostwriting. There are um, there are sort of universal truths I think that apply to storytellers of all kind. And what I found about forty or fifty episodes into this, an hour in our third season, uh, is that there are stories to be told that are also interesting by all artists and creatives who work on behalf of someone else's voice or someone else's vision. So that would include songwriters or speech writers or late night comedy writers, people who sling jokes for six bucks a pop to Phyllis Diller. Um, so a, a lot of us uh, uh, struggling writers never get beyond that struggling writer phase. And we need to hustle and we need find to find ways to cobble together a living that allow us to write the books that we want to write, like my, like my four novels. So it's a great conversation. It's an ongoing conversation, and I'm looking forward to another few seasons of it.
0: New York magazine called him the world's most prolific ghost. Daniel Pazer is a ghostwriter and an author. We appreciate your being on Book TV.
1: Thanks for having me on, Peter.
0: And you're watching About Books, a program and podcast produced by C SPANS Book TV. Well, each week, dozens of new books are published. Here's a few recent ones. Historian and award-winning Lincoln biographer, Alan Gelzo is out with his latest book on the 16th president. It's entitled, Our Ancient Faith, Lincoln, Democracy, and the American Experiment. Mr. Gelzo is a three-time winner of the Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize, awarded for scholarly studies of Abraham Lincoln. And out next week, it's Pulitzer Prize winning journalist David Finkel's look at political and cultural divisions in America. The book is titled, An American Dreamer, Life in a Divided Country, and it follows an Army veteran across 14 years from his service in Iraq through the 2020 election. Now Mr. Finkel previously has written about the Iraq War in his 2010 book, The Good Soldiers, and 2014 book, Thank You for Your Service. And those are some of the new books that are coming out in the near future. Here's a few book reviews as well. The Daily Mail's Charlie Spearing is out with a new book. It's a critique of Vice President Kamala Harris, her political career, and her potential path to the White House. The book is entitled Amateur Hour. George Marlin reviews that book in Newsmax, and he writes, quote, to understand how Harris, the San Francisco socialite turned Politico, fast-tracked her way to the national stage only to lose the faith of the base and her president, pick up a copy of Charlie Spearing's new book. It is an unfettered look at the woman who is one heartbeat away from the presidency. In another book review, The Washington Examiner's Paul Bedard takes a look at presidential historian Craig Shirley's latest book on the 40th president. It's entitled, The Search for Reagan, The Appealing Intellectual Conservatism of Ronald Reagan. Quote, there are few scholars and former political aides who know more about Ronald Reagan than Craig Shirley, Paul Bedard writes. He has written four well-received books on the 40th president and his latest is a delightful addition with something new, an epic takedown of Washington. And finally, Publishers Weekly takes a look at journalist and travel writer John O'Connor's debut book. It's on the enduring American mythological creature, Bigfoot. The book is entitled, The Secret History of Bigfoot, Field Notes on a North American Monster. In the review, quote, what does it mean that so many Americans believe a large ape-like creature roams the country's forest? Publishers Weekly writes, Journalist John O'Connor attempts to answer this question in an amusing and thoughtful debut that focuses on Bigfooters as much as on the legendary beast itself. And this week on Book TV's Afterwards program, Wesleyan University professor Andrew Curran looks at how the concept of race emerged during the 18th century Enlightenment period. Mr. Curran collaborated on the book with Harvard University professor, Henry Louis Gates Jr. Here's a
2: preview. But the notion of race, the way we understand it right now was something that came about during the 18th century. And this is actually a micro history and a macro history of that phenomenon when you think about it. Because you have a a contest and the contest is not simply a contest, it is um, a scientific academy or science in general claiming the right to to uh, determine what exactly each category of human on the planet was worth mm-hmm. and what its significance was and what its origin was. For the longest time, first, the, the term race didn't mean race in the same way we understand it. If you said the word race in 1720 or 1680, most people would say, would think that, oh, maybe that person's talking about a race of dogs Mm. or a race of horses. Okay. Animals. Or possibly a race of kings, Uh a race of nobles. And so there is the idea of lineage and bloodlines, but you never talked about groups of people uh, as races. The terms used for say, the inhabitants of Sub-Saharan Africa, might be um, nations, peoples, um, or as things became a little bit closer to natural history and science, maybe varieties. And the word varieties is a really interesting word. Um, It's actually kind of closer to reality in some ways because uh, the word variety is a botanical term, which implies cross-fertilization, and a whole range of different possibilities and phenotypes, whereas the word race implies a certain limited number of groups and lineages. Um, it's a, it's a zoological term. So you'll notice that the uh, the contest didn't ask for, you know, what is the source of race? It's asking about skin, mm-hmm. it's asking about hair, but it's really asking about something we're called we're, we're, we would call race now because it's, it's science uh, claiming the right to, to do this, to say who people are, as I just said.
0: And a reminder, that Afterwards airs every Sunday evening at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Well, thanks for joining us for About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Book TV will continue to bring you publishing news and author programs. And a reminder that you can get this podcast on the C-SPAN Now app. You can also watch online anytime all of Book TV's programming.